I believe we probably waste 90 or 95% of the energy out there because we live in a fiat society. We produce shit we don't need. We do it slower, more stupid, more retarded, more backwards than we otherwise would had we had a, um, a monetary system that we could measure all of the stuff accurately with. We're literally like blind men trying to build a house and not only like trying to build a house being blind, but we're using a elastic tape measure. And we're wondering why everything is like all wonky and fucking nothing's holding together. Like Bitcoin is like eyesight with a tape measure that works. And as a result, you actually get a house. You don't get fucking shacks. Greetings and salutations, my fellow plebs. My name is Walker and this is the Bitcoin podcast. The Bitcoin block height is 821333 and the value of one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. Today's episode is Bitcoin Talk, where I talk with my guest about Bitcoin and many other things as well. Today, that guest is Alex Svetsky. He's an author, a speaker, and an entrepreneur. He co-authored a fantastic book with Mark Moss called The Uncommunist Manifesto. It's a rebuttal to Marx and Engels' The Communist Manifesto. I'll read both of them together in an episode of Bitcoin Out Loud on an upcoming show. Svetsky is also building Spirit of Satoshi, a Bitcoin-centric AI, and he's the publisher of The Bitcoin Times, not to be confused with BTC Times. Svetsky and I dig into a bunch of topics, but our conversation centers around communism, capitalism, Bitcoin, and energy. We unpack some of the misconceptions people have about both communism and capitalism, and talk about how we can reframe these discussions. We also dig into how much communism has already infected our world, even here in the supposedly capitalist United States of America. As always, you can watch the video version of this episode on Rumble, YouTube, or X by searching at Walker America, or listen on Fountain or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Bitcoin Podcast. If you listen to The Bitcoin Podcast on Fountain, consider giving the show a boost or creating a clip of something you found interesting. If you haven't checked out Fountain yet, I highly recommend it. You can send Bitcoin to your favorite podcasters and earn Bitcoin just for listening to this show. And if you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, hit me up on social media or on bitcoinpodcast.net. Without further ado, let's get into this Bitcoin talk with Alex Svetsky. Man, glad we were able to uh, to get this on the books because I've been wanting to to have a chat with you and just pick your brain for a while. You and I always get into some interesting topics uh, when we're chatting at conferences. And now that I have another fucking Bitcoin podcast, what better place to have another one of those chats since we're uh, a ways apart now? But I uh, figure we can get into a, a couple of different topics today. I definitely want to pick your brain a bit about, let's call it the state of the state as it mm -hmm. relates to kind of hearkening back to some of the really shitty communist ideas that were put out in the last couple hundred years and how we see some of those infecting the political machines and the minds of those who are less inclined to independent thought, uh, how we see it infecting them today. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, you, you'd sent me uh, some stuff from the upcoming uh, episode or upcoming edition, excuse me, of the Bitcoin Times. And 
really enjoyed those reads. I know it, it, it has it been released yet, or it's not uh, not fully released. Pre-release, yeah, okay. So you know we can go into it as much as you want without you know giving away too many of the goods because I would recommend that that folks read that as well. Uh, and then I actually I, I went back today and I reread your piece, uh, Fire, Bitcoin Teleportation. Oh, the classic, yeah. Yeah, because you know because you mentioned it in the uh, in the recent one you sent me, and I I mm -hmm. thought you know I I read it like I read it some some time ago now, but I thought let me go back and let me let me revisit that with a different lens. And so that was, uh, I think that's a, honestly still a really great primer on how, or let's not say how, let's say ways you can think about Bitcoin in terms of its larger scale impact, mm -hmm. uh, not just, you know, okay, it's this technology, it's this money, but what does that actually mean in the grand scheme of things for us on this little speck of rock floating around in the universe? Like, how does that, what difference does that actually make? So I figure we'll we'll dig into some of that. There's also plenty of uh plenty of let's say current events we can dig into. I just saw a fucking Ray Dalio today at the climate conference oh, made good, some Dan. hilarious statements about uh there basically we're living in a world that doesn't have enough money. Uh and that's the problem is that uh, there's not enough money and the money's too expensive now because of interest rates and I just found that to be such an absurd statement and maybe a good jumping off point for some other discussions. But I'm, yeah, that, I mean, to pull on that thread, if yeah. you want to jump there, like let's, let's that, jump anywhere. Let's, um, I mean, have you ever seen the argument that Alan Watts makes about like money and in inches? Um, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, you know, having not enough money is kind of like, you know, running out of inches it's like you don't you don't just run out of inches you know like you you just keep building it's not like something happens all of a sudden you know the the animal spirits and like now we can't build anything or produce anything or do all that like it's yeah it's it's maddening um you know the the ray dahlias of the world are interesting characters man like someone recommended me principles the other day which is look you know I, I read the book when it first came out it was interesting um but like i don't know i just can't take these people seriously anymore whether it's dalio whether it's uh the talibs of the world and stuff like that it's just like mind-bogglingly like insane when they when they blurt out shit like that it's like guys who who almost are there like and are obviously let's say very intelligent in their own right, have impressive careers behind them in one realm or another, but there's a piece of the puzzle that's very obviously missing. It's a, a blind spot, you might say. And I think Dalio has at least been a bit more favorable towards Bitcoin than, let's say, uh, you know, Nassim. But still, one would think if he really got it, he would be at the climate conference saying things like, you know, okay, if we want to, uh, quote, save the planet, let's, we'll talk in their terms, if we want to fight the climate crisis and do so profitably, well, literally the only way you're going to do that and make these projects that you're proposing be in any way profitable is by incorporating Bitcoin mining. Like that's, that's the only way you're doing it. It's, it's not happening otherwise. Cause that was his, his, his larger point was about profitability. So basically saying that because the cost of capital is so high right now, you know, they're borrowing at six, seven, eight percent or more. Okay, nobody's going to finance these projects. And he's saying it's going to be five to ten trillion dollars a year that's required to finance it. And the global GDP is, you know, hundred trillion or whatever. 
And basically he's saying there's just, there's just not enough money and the money that's out there isn't going to fund these projects because they're not going to be profitable. So he's right about part of it in that the money that's, you know, uh, smart money is not going to fund losing projects. The only way they're getting funded is with government subsidies and printing money. But to say that there's not enough money out there, the world doesn't have enough money is just, it's such an absurd premise to operate from. Yeah. When, when he, when he released principles, I actually wrote a, um, an essay that was like a kind of like Breed loves open letter to him, but just not, mm. not as long. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it, it kind of broke down some of this stuff. Right. And Dali reminds me of a guy, like, you know, if you're watching a movie and you see sort of like the main character and I'm going to like make an analogy is not accurate, but it's like the main character is like opening these doors and like, you know, there's one door and you know that like the exit is that door. And he's just like continually opening every single fucking door other than like the one that is like, and you're kind of like watching and you're like, dude, it's like, yeah, like it's, it's the middle fucking door just open that one and he keeps opening every single other one and he's like yep there's no solution the the price of money is too much we can't finance the debt blah 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 blah. so you know the 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 entire argument actually of my essay that i wrote back then it was a couple years ago now was dalio is always talking about paradigm shifts and he is entrenched in the current paradigm and cannot interpret the world through something as paradigmatically different as bitcoin because that that's that's people's biggest um biggest hurdle i think when it comes to bitcoin and you know there's another essay that i want to uh publish over the next couple months when i get a chance to finish writing it is called uh the incompatible worlds theory and the, the the premise of that as you can probably tell by the title is that you know bitcoin and the current world are just incompatible so like you can imagine bitcoin as this other realm you know, like you, you, you pastoral portal and you're somewhere else. And in this other realm, you know, there's a, you know, gravity goes the other way. Time goes the other way, like all this sort of stuff. In fact, we should probably say like gravity goes the right way. Time goes the right way, etc. Like the, yeah. things, things function in a particular way there. And just the, the, the principles that underlie how everything functions in that world just don't exist in the current world that we're in, in the current world that we're in, you know, we like, the money works as accounts and messages that like, you know, get sent amongst, you know, whoever is running these centralized uh, uh, ledgers and, you know, they agree on the balances on these ledgers. In the Bitcoin world, money is not accounts based. It's, you know, it's UTXO sets and it's digital signatures that imply ownership. Like it's a completely different paradigm. Mm. Uh, in you know, in this paradigm, money is something that is created and issued by governments. Over there, money is a fixed constant that is divisible and that is issued programmatically. Like that, everything is paradigmatically different. And this is this is where I you know try and. I mean, I, I'm, you know, being called a Bitcoin boomer because I believe Bitcoin's going to take a lot longer to reach mass adoption than people think. I think it's genuinely going to take, you know, between 50 to 100 years. I don't believe in any of this short-term Bitcoin's going to take over everything. And I say that because Bitcoin is so, so much of a shift, so much of a change. It's not a technological shift. It's not a... Um, uh, just a purely economic shift. It's not a social shift. It's like it's all of these things in one, right? It's a socioeconomic, political, philosophical, technological, 
paradigm shift. It's all of these things. So, so you can't you can't project an iPhone adoption curve on it. You can't project an internet adoption curve on it. You can't project an e-commerce adoption curve on it or an AI adoption curve or whatever any other fucking adoption curve you can think of. This is this encompasses everything, which means it's going to take multiple generations to embed itself and for the culture to fundamentally uh, transform. And, you know, human beings' biggest weak spot is in understanding a paradigm that they're not currently in. And that is infinitely harder when you are someone who has profited so much from the current paradigm. And I think that's, um, and that's not to say profiting is bad, right? But it's like, I mean that in the, in the, in the literal sense of the term, he has, you know, he has profited his life, his, you know, his money, his brand, his message, his persona, his legacy and everything like that is well entrenched in the current paradigm to, 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 uh, disparage 65 years of work, however old he is, uh, for this new paradigm will require that he burns down a lot of that identity. Um, and you know, one can argue it's not going to happen maybe until, you know, He's on his last couple legs, uh, and then he's fine with just saying, "Oh well, fuck it." Um, I'll just say the truth. So, so anyway, that, that's what I think we're contending with here. No, I, I think that's a it's an excellent point because it's it's so hard, and this is something Jeff Booth has talked about a lot. That the big blind spot for a lot of these people is just that again, they're they're trying to. If we go back to the measuring stick analogy, you know, they're they're trying to they're trying to measure the new system using a completely different yardstick, one that is based on this really kind of fake and immaterial and completely contrived system of money that truly only works for a select few people and is just opaque in terms of its operation. And it's this ridiculous system. It's almost comically absurd because if you were trying to devise, okay, what's the, what's the, best way I could think of to absolutely fuck over the majority of the population in perpetuity, you would probably come up with something that looks like fiat money. You would probably come up with something that if you were in that upper echelon, that you would come up with something that basically closely resembles fiat. Okay, allow me to keep inflating my own wealth while decreasing the purchasing power of those below me so that we keep getting farther and farther apart. And I always have scapegoats to blame the negative effects of this on. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a beautifully designed system. If you're one of the people who enjoys the benefits of stealing the time and energy of others, but it's yes. a terrible system. If you're the majority of people who want to be able to lift themselves up through the, you know, through their hard work and their intelligence and their creativity. So let me, um, let me give a interesting contrarian viewpoint on this, um, okay. Okay. Which, I, which I must do. Um, it's, I, a green principle. Um, I think what's uh, different, um, where where my where my viewpoint will deviate slightly, is that um, I don't think it's traditionally the people that were on top that um, devised fiat. I believe it was the um, so if you look at feudal civilization, feudal uh, society, um, you had sort of the the monarchs, the kings and queens. You know, you had the aristocracy. Um, you had the you know, the artisans, you had the peasants, and more often than not, and this was probably more um, more so in Japanese culture, but, but it was also in Western culture, was you had the merchants were generally below the, um, 
the peasants. Now, there was a differentiation also between merchants and traders or the money changers. And it was usually, you know, the money changer kind that was the, that rung, they were despised by people. Um, the, you know, the ones who didn't produce anything, you know, so merchants found way to, ways to elevate themselves. So like, you know, the Medici's and everything like that, they were aristocratic, but they were merchant aristocratic. Um, whereas the money changers who didn't produce anything, they were the ones who sought to uh, find ways to produce uh, something out of nothing, like ex nihilo, right? And so, so not not create something, not sell something, but just like in the exchange, do something. Um, now, what I believe has happened uh, in the fiat world is we had the rise of the trader archetype, um, who, in their spite of all that was greater and more beautiful than them, uh, figured out a way. And, and I don't mean this as it was all entirely intentional, but there was obviously some sort of intent here in like uh, elevating themselves at the expense of everybody else. Because once again, in a, in a trader scenario, you are making some sort of arbitrage without actually adding any value, right? Um, now, th that's not always the case. Obviously, speculators suck things up, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm sure there's going to be some fucking free market argument here. I get it. I'm not that fucking stupid. I've been there. Um, but what, what I'm trying to explain is the, the archetype here is this kind of person who is the, you know, the, the modern day Rothschild, for example, uh, devised a way to win at the game by cheating. And that's essentially what fiat money is. Fiat money is a mechanism of not winning because you are aristocratic, not winning because you're the best, not winning because you are better winning because you cheat, right? So it is the boxer that gets in the ring and ensures that his opponent's water has been, you know, spiked with some sort of drug or, you know, is his opponent has sand in his face or something like that. He wins not because he was a better fighter, but he wins because he cheated. And that is like the big thing that people need to understand with what Bitcoin does. Bitcoin is not going to elevate the masses, Bitcoin is going to elevate the best of us. And that means it's not going to be some sort of equalization where it's all fucking kumbaya and happy and all this sort of stuff. It's, I think, going to bring back more aristocracy than it is helping the plebeians or the, or the, or the so-called um, you know, peasant class. Because what it takes for somebody to raise themselves up is a desire for greatness, uh, a you know a desire for excellence, the you know the ability to take on responsibility, courage, honor, respect, loyalty, like all of these virtues, which uh, in terms of the mass population are actually quite rare. It's very rare to have people who don all of those. That's why the warrior class, for example, in all great cultures, was a small percentage of the entire uh, social structure. It was always the case. Like so, so the cream rises to the top, and we, we, we. I think in the Bitcoin space, we get lost with um, you know all of our various and numerous kind of like ideas. Is that you know we think it's all like I saw a tweet the other day. It's like oh you know the the spider like is smaller than the lion, but a bunch of spiders together can you know kill a lion or something like that. And I was like, that's such a pathetic thing to say because like the lion is this beautiful majestic creature and it's like you literally made an argument for the bugs like you literally made an argument for communism <laughs> like yeah. that's 
it's a disgusting thing. It's like, yeah, okay, the bugs fucking brought down this majestic creature. No, it's fucking that's that's disgusting. That is literally what that is. That is the energy of communism. That is what communism tried to do. It told all of the peasants and all of the people who didn't work for it, hey, it is your right, your entitlement to claim that which is not yours. And communism, like I got asked um, a month ago, and I've refined my thinking on this. The opposite to communism is not capitalism. I disavowed this claim. I said that in the Uncommunist Manifesto. I believe the opposite to communism is beauty. Fundamentally, beauty. Beauty is the highest of all things. Beauty is God. Beauty is nature. Beauty is that which is fit, which that that which fits that is, that which is perfect, etc. Right? It is it is the thing that we're always aiming at. That is the thing that life reaches for. And when you look at these ideals like communism, like majoritarianism of any kind, equalitarianism of any kind, they all seek to destroy beauty, to bring down uh, to their level, and. What you have with fiat money is an engine that basically steals from the blind, and the blind are too stupid to understand who you know who who's stealing from them, and then it creates an opportunity to blame the actual productive class, the aristocratic class, the functional class, you know, who I would have called in the past the remnant, right? That group of people, and it's their fault. They're the ones who should be blamed. Like I saw a, you know, a thread uh, yesterday. I opened up my fucking Instagram for some strange reason, and you know there was a thread in there, and it was this lady saying, you know, I'm not saying we should bring out the pitchforks just yet, but Jeff Bezos is, um, you know, uh, building clocks in the whatever, you know, and here we are, you know, not enough food. It's like, it's literally, like, she's being stolen from by the parasitic class. And she's blaming the productive class. It's the same fucking game. And this is what I mean when I said at the outset, it's the trader archetype trying to bring down the the greatness, the excellence archetype, trying to bring down the Musks and the, the Bezos and all that out of the world. So I'll shut up there for a moment. I think that nuance is very important. It's not about, um, yeah, it's, it's not about saving the masses because the masses are too hard to fucking save. Um, it is about building a better fucking game so that the best can get better. And then they naturally fucking raise the tide. And it gets better for all the fucking dumbasses who don't know how to make it better anyway. No, I, I appreciate the clarification because I should have been more precise with my language because I will agree with you that uh, it's not like uh, the simple act of changing the rules automatically gives everyone the ability to raise themselves up. What it does do is create a rule with, or excuse me, a game with fair rules, with, with rules that are known by all participants, should they choose to learn them, but they are mm -hmm. at least knowable. The <laughs> rules are knowable. And for those that have the desire and the vitality, the energy mm -hmm. to pull themselves up, to rise to the top, it enables that to happen in greater numbers and more rapidly than it does in a system that is predicated on theft. So I, I agree with the clarification there. And I saw that fucking thread the other, I think somebody posted a screenshot on Twitter and it, it, yeah, he, uh, Bezos built like a, a large like clock in a, on a mountain somewhere and that she was really pissed about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but it's just, it's absurd because you complain about, you know, Bezos spending whatever $40 million of his own money for providing you 
by the way, he earned that by providing Amazon, which guarantee <laughs> you use to, you know, you used to order the laptop that you're, you know, that you're tweeting off of. You, yeah, you used to order half the fucking things in your house. He created an insanely valuable business and genuinely useful business that brings us a level of convenience we couldn't even have dreamed about before. And you're mad at him spending however many million to create something that he finds beautiful and likely others do too. I haven't seen it. I'll have to look up what the pictures. I'm sure it's, it's probably pretty fucking cool, yeah. but you're mad at him, the, a productive person, massively productive, instead of being mad at the fucking governments shoveling hundreds of billions of dollars overseas through various, you know, shell NGOs, and then right back to the military industrial complex. Meanwhile, they're still, you know, stealing from you every fucking year more and more by devaluing your money. But no, 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 you're mad at the guy who has actually made your life better mm -hmm. in a decade than the government has in 100, 200 years. Like, it's just, it's absurd. And it's, it's a lack of any sort of, like, grounding in reality, I think, where you truly do not have the ability. And I feel sad for people like this, but you know what? It's, it's somewhat, well, I believe in personal responsibility. So I think if you are too fucking lazy to go out and find the answer for yourself and to dig a little bit deeper, that's on you. Yeah. Granted, it's, it's difficult today because we are so inundated with information. There is so much fucking noise out there that it's difficult for most people to sift through that. But to just be a person who operates with all of their quote, thoughts and opinions, simply being party slogans, because that's all they are. You're not saying anything that hasn't been already given to you, fed to you on a silver platter by the party. And I use the party in a generalist sense. And it's just, it's sad to see that kind of person is never going to lift themselves up, no matter what the rules of the game are. In fact, they may not like the system that is to come because it is more radically transparent yes and it is more merit-based and you can't just complain your way to relevance and exactly. have somebody give you a fucking cookie and an award exactly. it doesn't work that way yeah this this honestly what you just said there is the my crusade for next year is and it's like there's a there's a whole section dedicated to it in the bushido of bitcoin is my crusade to to sort of make it clear that that you know bitcoin's going to do more damage quote unquote to to you know people's psyche and all that sort of stuff in the in the short to medium term than it is you know than, than what people think like the, people think it's just going to magically fucking fix everything no no, no. it there's going to be exacerbated inequalities there's going to be all of this like the the you know and i this i believe it's in the five bitcoin teleportation when i talk about the interregnum right like sort of mm -hmm. before bitcoin after bitcoin and sort of that you know the, the 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 time when those two periods clash is going to be where neither rule book fits, and like you've got it's going to be fucking chaos for the next couple generations. But if we can kind of cold turkey our way through it, and and I mean the analogy is so perfect. It's you know you get somebody who's a heroin junkie. I mean getting off the fucking heroin is hell, and but that they like if they relapse. They're just going to remain a heroin junkie. So you actually have to go through hell and come out the other end. And that, that is like exactly what civilization has to go through. And we're seeing the early signs of this shit, man. I mean, like, you know, Millet is obviously an incredible example of, 
you know, that kind of energy sprouting up. You know, you're seeing it in Amsterdam. I mean, you know, if McGregor's taking seriously the, um, you know, the, the, to take over fucking Ireland, making king, fuck yes. Like, um, you know, Musk is doing his job with, um, with Twitter. It's like, there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a palpable shift in the energy that is, um, that is coming out of this stuff. And, um, and anyway, it's, it's like, it's a very interesting timeline to be a part of, but, you know, one thing we can't sort of take for granted is that it's, it's going to be messy and the, the parasite's capacity to um, inflame and infuriate the masses is where the greatest danger is going to come from. Because a couple parasites, you know, like, you know, Rothschild with his little fucking golden cane isn't going to, you know, come and pick up a gun and shoot us, right? But it's like the fucking hordes of Luddites. They're the ones who are going to blame the Bitcoiners for the rain and the sunshine and the fact that they can't drive cars anymore and, you know, gasoline's too expensive and everything like that. Like, I can't fucking eat. It's the Bitcoin's fault. It's your fucking fault. And that's no, what we've got to prep ourselves for. And, and honestly, it's a, uh, I think that's a very real concern that maybe, cause you're right there, things don't just change like that. We don't just go from the entrenched system to something new and on the road to beautiful overnight. It's going to be a long and painful journey, likely with many, many, uh, state, you know, currency collapses that lead to nation state collapses and a massive shift of power in an already growing multipolar world. And I think that it's very easy and very tempting as a Bitcoiner to look and say, ah, yes, one day everyone's going to wake up and realize we Bitcoiners were right and we're such geniuses and they're going to pat us on the back for it and give us a good old boy. And then they'll, you know, everything will be fine and there won't be any hard feelings and, you know, la-di-da. But it's just not the case. Uh, humans have a massive propensity for jealousy and that is easy to inflame if you know the right buttons to push mm -hmm. and and we see this all the time i mean and that's really what that's really what marx and engels tried to do with the communist manifesto and i think that's kind of a a little bit of a good segue there because i'd, I'd love to pick your brain on it a little uh for everyone's context and maybe maybe we actually Let's let's pause for a second and because I, I usually like to start these things out with with a question uh, and we got right into ripping uh, quickly, as we often do, which is fantastic. But I want to start out just to uh, set the stage for you a little, you know, your bio is that, you know, you're author, speaker, entrepreneur, you're uh, you're building a Bitcoin centric A.I. Uh, you also you wrote uh, a book that I think everyone should read. Uh, after they read the Communist Manifesto, and that is the Uncommunist Manifesto. You wrote that with Mark Moss. Fantastic read. I've gone through it a few times. Uh, and I'd love to start out, though, with the question of who is Alex Fedsky? How did he get here today? What brought you? What brought you here where you are now in this world? Damn. Okay, that's a tough question. Um, I know is it is. Um, hmm. I mean, yeah, as you said, I kind of publicly define myself as some entrepreneur author kind of thing. But I think Alex Vetsky is, is an ambitious man, someone who thinks that 
if you're going to live life, you should build, you should create, you should push the envelope. And, you know, life isn't so much about the number of years you've lived, but the amount of, uh, the amount of flame that came off you along the process. So like what I mean by that is, um, you know, the people like Alexander the Great who, you know, or Napoleon or Christ, you know, all who lived, oh, sorry, well, Napoleon lived a little bit longer, but, you know, Alexander the Great <laughs> and Christ, who I think are the two most powerful characters in the history of humanity, both lived about 33 years. Like they did more in that period than everybody else combined did in their entire lifetimes combined. And I think if you're going to live and you're going to be alive, uh, it is your duty in some capacity to now we're all not going to be as great as Christ and Alexander. You know, that's the, that's the bar, you know, that is the, that is the apex. Um, but it's, it is our duty individually to burn as fucking bright as we can during the time we have, and then to mature along the way and pass that on. So to bring that back to Louis Svetsky is, you know, is a person who's trying to do that in some capacity, who makes mistakes um, who then gets the fuck up, tries again, and will continue doing that till the day dies. I like that. I see. I, I like asking that question because everybody takes it differently. And I think it's a, it's a very telling one. So I appreciate that answer. And I, I think that that's also something that we've lost. I, I shouldn't say we've lost. I mean, we, as the collective have lost yeah. as a species, yeah. that desire to strive for greatness. And that greatness can take many forms, right? That, that greatness, you know, as you said, not everybody's going to be the Alexander the Great, very obviously. No, he is the Alexander the Great. We can all try to become whatever the version of ourselves is that reaches for that. And the way I take that is just, you know, it, and it sounds like some fucking cliched self-help shit, but like becoming the best version of yourself, the apex of yourself which I, I am also someone who is constantly making mistakes and doing my best to get back up and to learn from those mistakes and to try and go into my next opportunity to make a mistake or to succeed with more information than I had the first time. Because that's the, I think, actually, uh, what's in my head from that is that Buckminster Fuller uh, uh, short clip that you had in your Bitcoin uh, fire and teleportation where he talks about, you know, after every experiment, you always know more, you, mm. you can't know less, but what you do with that increased information is really up to you. And I think so many people would rather shift blame, shift responsibility and shift the impetus for action onto somebody else mm, rather yes. than themselves, because that's more comfortable, right? That's easier. Let me just stay in my pod. Let me keep putting, you know, one foot in front of the other, uh, moving in whatever direction I am. I don't care, but yeah, that's that. Now I, I want to, uh, I wanted to get your background so I di didn't forget it and hear who you are. And I appreciate that. What I'd like to dive into a little bit, let's get back to communism because I think that it is such a, you can see a lot of fucking idiots on social media, uh, who really like the fucking neo Marxists who think that, wow, Karl Marx, what a fucking genius. This guy was brilliant. Oh my good. How did he think of these incredible things? Yes. He's, he's, he is my Messiah. And this guy was a fucking loser. 
Like he was literally, literally a bum. He was literally a fucking loser who mooched off of his bourgeoisie, if we're using his words, his bourgeoisie wealthy friend, Engels, and wrote this fucking, I've got, I've got it sitting right here on, on the old desk. The fucking communist manifesto. Well, it's okay because I've got right next to it. I've got the uncommunist (laughs) manifesto. Uh, So at least you know it's 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 evening out and then some. Uh, But but I think what what most people know about the communist manifesto, if they know nothing else, hopefully they at least know that if you in Marx's own words, if you're going to sum up communism in one phrase, it's the abolition of private property. He himself says this in the manifesto. That much is clear. If you, if you don't know that already, you should definitely read the Communist Manifesto. I think I'll do an episode where I read one after another. So I'll read the communist, right. then the uncommunist, let people form their own conclusions. Because if you have half a fucking brain, that shouldn't be too hard. But I think what a lot of people miss about the Communist Manifesto is that it's really a bit of a blueprint for what we see right now. In, and we can even see this in a Western country like the United States, which is supposed to be, you know, something, something better. But, you know, one of the things, the, the second measure that he puts out there after abolition of private property is a progressive income tax. That's, that's the number two thing he puts out there. Number three, uh, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Like those three right there, get rid of private property make a progressive income tax to try and quote, even the playing field and make things more equal, you know, equality and equity, and then get rid of any inheritance so that there's no incentive for you to, to procreate, to create a family and to leave something, to leave a legacy for your heirs who can then build upon it. There's like seven more there, but though we can start with those first three and realize what well, we already see that happening to high degrees in quote, Western countries around the world. So I'd love to get your thoughts as a starting point on what do you think, uh, what do you think people miss when it comes to the communist manifesto? Maybe what brought you and Mark to that point where you decided we need, we need to write a rebuttal to this because people just don't get it. Yeah. I mean, what brought us to it was just a a joke actually six months prior to writing it was, um, Mark and I were sitting in El Salvador, actually, just before the Bitcoin legal tender came into effect. It was in July, something like that. First trip there, and you know, we were just having a lunch, actually. And he asked, he goes, have you read the Communist Manifesto? I was like, fuck would I do that? And he said, it's so bad. And I was like, I'm, I'm sure it is. I said, I want to give myself brain cancer. I think I'll you know, avoid reading it. And... You know, he kind of just said as a passing comment, he's like, someone should write a rebuttal to that, you know, like something that, you know, he goes, it's like a really widely read book. And I'm like, yeah, maybe we should do it one day. And we kind of like just left it there. And it wasn't until about six months later that uh, I landed in Texas, had some changes in my own personal life uh, with um, with work and some, you know, disagreements I had with regulators, shall we say. And uh, I was like, Mark, I've got some time on my hands. Uh, let's write this fucking thing. So we locked ourselves in a room and wrote it basically within a week. And then I sort of spent like a month editing it and just like building out the definitions and, you know, giving it some structure and some flow. But um, I think I, I honestly hadn't even read the Communist Manifesto until two weeks before we went to read it. 
And I just remember like viscerally, like just getting angry reading the book. Like I'd read it. I'm like, fuck is this guy talking about? Like, and it just like, you know, paragraph after paragraph was just this, like, you could just, you could, you know, these days we meme about cope, right? Like this was like the, the, the ultimate cope on the planet. Like the guy is just like, as you said, loser, cope, angry with people, people he doesn't know, just like fucking berating their existence because he's just such a pathetic turd. And, you know, his, his literal, like, solutions to how to fix the world are the things that, like, I don't know, I don't care if you want to put it in a, in a um, you know, sort of Bitcoin Austrian economics framework, like, destroy time preference, right? So it's like, if you want to destroy time preference, you penalize anything that involves a low time preference, okay? So that's what he does with all of his fucking mandates. If you take it from an angle of like, you know, beauty and ugliness, all right? Well, he wants to, anything that is beautiful, and Nietzsche talks about this, you know, Nietzsche's, some of his like, you know, I've gone down the Nietzsche rabbit hole this year, basically. And um, I wish I'd gone through it earlier because I think my, the Uncommunist Manifesto would be even stronger than it was, but irrespective, Nietzsche talked about resentment being the thing that poisoned Western civilization and that as the, the underlying, um, the underlying cancer and resentment stems from envy, essentially. And, um, you know, you, you just sense that in there. And, and so the reason I was mentioning Nietzsche, he, he talks about when we think of beauty, beauty is the thing that requires the most sacrifice because like beauty in human beings requires breeding no one wants to talk about this shit because they call you genesis straight away but like if you want to create beautiful kids you need to be fucking selective about who you breed with we do it with fucking animals humans are the same thing that's like it's what we do you want to pass on you know the best that you can from a genetic standpoint and you want to you know continue that beauty is something that takes fucking time you want to build a cathedral that's going to take 300 years you need to build something that's going to that you are not going to see for yourself like the Medici family did what they did in Milan, sorry, not Milan, um, in Florence, Thanks. because they, they, they did something that took time. So, so like, whether you see it through a beauty standpoint, Austrian economics, whatever, like any of these uh, competing philosophies or models of the world, what you see bleeding through uh, Marx's writing is straight up cope, Envy, seething, resentment, ugliness, and an attempt to bring everything that is better than he is, that is more beautiful than he is, that is more righteous, more structural, more functional, more productive than he is, bring it all fucking down. And like, you know, I, I've got some, you know, radical takes, particularly on taxation, right? Like, I, I've, I've become a little bit more of a statist, I must admit. Um, sorry to all my libertarian friends. Like, I, I, I've come to believe that, you know, people like Bukele and everything like that are the flavor of statist that you want because all territories require leadership. Um, so I don't believe in statism through the paradigm of, like, for example, democracy and all that garbage, but I believe in, like, the philosopher king version of uh, territorial management. Um, which Bukele is a great example, Malay might be an even greater example, etc. But, um, you know, if within a territory you are going to have some sort of 
membership. So like um, I, I will say here that my 10-year plan is to take over Macedonia and run it as like as a country as a service. Okay, you'll have a membership, you know, all this residency citizenship bullshit out the fucking window. You just pay a membership and you'll get this uh, prescribed set of services for the ability to live there. But if we just talk about you know, having access to a territory. And if we want to call that membership taxation, well, it would make sense to have a higher tax bracket for the lower earners and a lower tax bracket for the higher earners because that will incentivize people to earn more. You get what you incentivize, you get less of what you penalize. So just that second one, you know, is, is a way to turn everybody into a non-producer. Right. So this is, this is, this is one of those cancers that gets into a civilization. And this is honestly a hard one for people to cop. They're like, Oh, you know, how can you tax people earn less more? It's like, well, you know, the only answer, as I said before, is like, you get what you incentivize and you get less of what you disincentivize. If you want a rich culture, you should penalize poorness. <laughs> and it's like, I know that sounds brutal. Um, but it's the way it is. And then likewise with inheritance, like, you know, the thing Marx hated more than anything else was these lineages that extended back through time where wisdom, genetics, wealth, territory, property, uh, familial ties, all of this sort of stuff went back. That was like, you know, people had roots, you know, these days in modern civilization, we don't have any fucking roots. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a perfect example of this. I don't fucking have any roots back to like my, I, I don't know who my um, ancestors were. Um, you know, at, at some stage, one of the things I'd like to do is go back and trace that. But, you know, that all got lost because, you know, World War One, World War Two, you know, a bunch of shit got blown up. And we, we've been convinced over the last, you know, century or so that our lineages don't matter. It took a while for that to sort of embed itself, you know, really post-World War II and the boomers who just didn't give a fuck about anything that came before them. They sort of embedded this ideology of like, oh yeah, the past doesn't matter, uh, you know, ancestry doesn't matter and all this sort of stuff. And what we are is we're a rootless culture. Like, you know, what, what happens to a tree that doesn't have roots? It fucking dies. Like, take a tree and plant it in a pot and see how big that tree grows. It doesn't grow very big. You know, the trees, the, the, the size of the tree is proportionate to, you know, the, the, the depth through which uh, its roots can get to. So if you want to kill a culture, if you want to kill a civilization, start to kill off the roots. And, and these, like, if you, if you look into each of these Marxist prescriptions, what you find is an attempt to kill off either productivity, kill off beauty, destroy roots, destroy time preference, all of these sorts of things. That's, that's exactly what these prescriptions are. And the result is fucking trannies gluing their hands to the fucking floor uh, to stop cars in the middle of the highway. Congratulations. We've got progress. If you want to keep your Bitcoin safe from the communists and the totalitarians of this world, you need to take it off an exchange and into your own custody. Go to bitbox.swiss slash walker and use the promo code walker for 5% off the Bitcoin only Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It's fully open source. You can go to their GitHub and verify for yourself. You don't have to trust me. It's also super easy to set up 
and it's a great tool for seasoned psychopaths and new Bitcoiners alike. When you go to bitbox.swiss walker and use the promo code walker, not only do you get 5% off, but you also help support another fucking Bitcoin podcast. So thank you. Now, I mean, it is, there's a couple points I want to touch on there. Uh, one is just with regard to the destruction of roots and sort of the, the quote, end of history. I, I, you know, Orwell does such a great job of this in 1984. Basically, they just, they just keep erasing history mm -hmm. no, no, because nobody knows their roots. Nobody knows their past. Nobody knows the history of their state, of their territory, and which makes it very, very convenient for the party, for the state to invent whatever sort of fabricated history is most convenient for them at the time and to constantly change that history to fit whatever narrative they're trying to push in the present because the past doesn't exist except the state's version of the past. And then you have the <laughs> one of the huge absurdities to me uh, of communism and of Marx's. He preaches this idea of we need to, you know, it's a, it's an unequal society, right? It's unequal because there's that, it's basically what we, you know, today we'd call the haves and the have nots, but it's, you know, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Well, the problem with what he prescribes for this is he says, okay, what we need to do is we need to get rid of all their private property, whatever they have left tax progressively, depending on how rich they are. Don't let them pass anything onto their kids. Uh, if they are deemed as a rebel, or as a, you know, an enemy of the party, then you take everything they have because, and then you, you give them the most, most humiliating, menial fucking job you possibly can. And, and this is actually what they did. I, I know this from talking to people who survived communism, like, like Carla's parents and talking about the experiences that their parents and their grandparents had going through this for many decades in Romania. But the fucking biggest absurdity for me is that Marx basically says we need to we need to have this change come about. And he even uses the word, what does he say? Uh, you know, through despotic, we may have to use despotic means at first, something to that effect, where he basically says, we're going to have to do really fucked up shit mm -hmm. to get what we want. But that's okay, because yeah. eventually we'll get to this perfect utopia. But the problem <laughs> is that the utopia that he prescribes is based on just a different hierarchy of control, just one that puts the worker, quote, the worker at the top. But really, you can't have everybody making all the decisions, so we should have a small party of people that makes these decisions, that represent the workers. And he talks, one of the other things he talks about is the centralization of credit and a monopoly on money by a state bank controlled by the party. That, I mean, that's literally just the central banking model. Mm -hmm. Like the central banking model is inherently communist in that way. Because I think what people miss is when, uh, if you don't have a good grasp of what communism actually means, you think that it just means some, maybe some nice idea that hasn't ever been perfectly sorted out, but, but maybe it'll get there. But the idea is okay, right? And it's like, no, the idea is fucked because the foundation of the idea is destroying the private property of others, taking it away, and giving it to other people, and then putting new people up at the top. It's just an, an authoritarian system. It's a it's a authoritarian, top-down, state-controlled system masquerading under the guise of lifting up the worker. But that's all really bullshit. And communism has been tried now again and again and again. And the neo-commies will say, well, real communism's never been tried. That's not the real Marxist way. It's like, listen, if you really got your way, communism would have 
ended uh, humanity as we know it by now. But luckily, there were enough people that said, this is complete bullshit. We're going to stand up against this. And, you know, the, the old common saying that you vote your way into communism, but you shoot your way out rings very, very true. And it's sad that so many people just do not grok that. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, like, the, the dragon was not slain. Um, it found its way to like it found its way into everything else uh, in the civilization we hold dear right and and that's the thing it's like we we thought we won um to some degree but we we we, we literally let it in the front door <laughs> it's like yeah you know, we and and that's that's what i think um in many ways has been missed it's like the the communism the overt communism was never going to win because it was just like people just don't have the stomach for it right and the kind of people who are um inclined to support it you know are too honestly are too pussy to like do what needs to be done right like and i i've i've been going down a massive rabbit hole uh on south africa and if you want to know what's going to happen to the rest of the west go and study South African history. South Africa was the, should, should have been the richest place in the world. Like it was richer than America in the uh, early 1900s. Um, South Africa was one of the jewels of Western civilization and everything that happened there uh, in terms of like how uh, immigrants are treated, like, um, you know, in terms of like mass immigration, like, you know, oh man, I, I don't want to get you in trouble in this, um, you know, in this uh, podcast. But th there is so much there. Like, if you if you ever want to go down a rabbit hole, Wilbur Smith, um, he's an author who writes historical fiction, and his books, honestly, man, like I thought Ayn Rand was a good writer. This guy's fucking way better. Um, like, he's incredible, and his stories are not about communism or any of that sort of stuff, particularly. That they're about a a family, the the Courtney family, who basically comes to uh, South Africa in the um, in the late 1700s uh, as English sailors and South Africa a lot of people don't realize was 90% uninhabited like the south of Africa was unfucking inhabited the first territorial claimants of that were not black people but white people they do not realize this shit um, it was a white man who inhabited it and built it up and it was particularly Englishmen Dutch uh, and a bit of German and it became the most prosperous and the the, the story his, his books basically follow this courtney family this courtney line and you see how uh communism sort of infiltrated south africa and started to tear it apart from inside and how then communism as an ideology infiltrated zimbabwe mozambique angola all of these regions and destroyed africa more than anything else like it wasn't colonialism it wasn't any of that sort of stuff that destroyed africa as a lot of people would like to have you believe it was communism that destroyed the entire fucking land um so so there's there's a lot there and it's just it's just interesting like matching that history up with you know everything that i sort of studied and learned in sort of writing the uncommunist manifesto everything that we're seeing in the west today with the wef with like all these stu whether it's 
climate change, whether it's ESG, whether it's fucking masks, whether it's central banking, whether it's whatever, all of it. It's like it's all found its way and it's infected everything. And I know it's going to be like this is why I say it's going to be something that like you don't remove an infection um, overnight. Doesn't happen like that unless you kill the host, right? Like so, so for us to disentangle ourselves from this cancer, it's going to take quite a lot. It's going to take a series of generations, and it's going to take really, 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 really good leadership in multiple ways—not a single leader, but like really strong leaders per micro territory, and as many of those as possible who form alliances. And you know, once again, as all history. This next phase of history will also be shaped by a few strong men who buck the fucking trend and offer a better narrative, a better story, a better future, something worth aspiring towards. And you'll see the rekindling of spirit in humanity. And, and honestly, I can already sense this. Like Millet for me has been such a... Um, such a breath of fresh air because you can sense the fucking energy in this son of a bitch. Like the way he fucking talks, the way he presents himself, like he's articulate, he's smart, he's energetic, he's passionate, he's driven, he's got all of this sort of stuff. And that's fucking inspirational. And it's not only inspirational, but it's like, it is so threatening to the communist archetype. Like they hate him, bro. They hate him. And I fucking love it. Like these people, they're worms. And Lose. And, and that and that's in a country that has been just plagued by these parasitic ideas and we have seen the result of it and in argentina it's a you know a, a really interesting and quite tragic case because it's happened again and again and again and again and it's like clockwork every couple of decades a new coup and a new overthrow and a new you know reformed uh party that promises some change and then what do they do they maintain their currency for a little while after wiping the books clean and then they run up hyperinflation again and then they re rinse and repeat over and over again so to see that energy i know people have the you know have some issues with uh you know various aspects of it and you know for me it's i i'm somebody who is uh i am never a fan of fawning over politicians in any way because they're just trying to get your vote what I think is good to pay attention to is the person's ideas. It doesn't, uh, you know, uh, liking the, the man, you know, we've gotten to this point where it's like politicians are expected to just be like, who's the most palatable to the most people, right? Who is going to be the most vanilla that doesn't irritate too many people too mm -hmm. much so they can put him up next to the other guy who's this big, loud, you know, uh, big, loud character and say, look, well, he's not crazy like that guy. But it's like the the fucking vanilla, you know, don't rock the boat type people are the ones that end up doing the most fucking nefarious shit totally. in the background. Totally. I mean, they're the ones who end up getting Nobel Peace Prizes for bombing the shit out of the Middle East. They're the ones who end up, you know, uh, declaring the wars on inflation one while they engage in multiple actual foreign wars and, you know, pump billions and billions of taxpayer dollars over to fund the absolute widespread slaughter of people on two sides of a moving territory line that don't really necessarily have anything to do with us as much as they would have you believe it. And 
it's a good example of just, eh, I'm so sick of the most palatable option being the one that people say, well, it's the lesser of two evils, you know, fuck that. I reject, I reject that premise that you should have to choose the lesser of two evils. You should choose what is best. You should choose who is best and you should choose the one that probably makes you a little bit uncomfortable. And, you know, we should also be wary of those who try to masquerade in those kind of populist clothes. Like personally, you know, and a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners may give me flack for this, but I think Trump is a fucking jackass. I think he did more of the same. People like to ignore the fact that it was he, him that appointed Jerome Powell, that it was under his administration that we printed $5 trillion during COVID. Oh, we had to, we had to. Bullshit. It, it, people like to make excuses for people that they identify with and that they like. What I try to remind myself to do is to question doubly hard the people who I find myself liking, because that's where we have blind spots. We have blind spots, not with the people who we automatically see, look, you're full of shit. I don't agree with anything you say. I think you're garbage. Those people we suss out pretty well, right? But the people that we find ourselves finding kinship with, that's where you have to kind of check yourself a little bit and say, what am I missing here? Am I having a blind spot? And uh, to clarify, this is not uh, directed towards Malay. I, because again, I find myself uh, pretty impressed with him. And as you said, he's a, he's a guy that's just like full of vitality. He's energetic and he scares the ever loving shit out of the establishment. And that's why you see them drawing parallels to Trump and drawing parallels to whoever they can to try and tarnish him. And it's the same sort of thing to a different degree that they do with Bukele who is now able to, you know, kind of, again, give people the middle fucking finger and say, look, all of you Western media pundits who were saying for years that El Salvador is going to default, that El Salvador is a, you know, a clearly an authoritarian state where, you know, the rule of law only exists at the behest of the president. His people are happy. His economy is thriving. His brilliant move to start stacking Bitcoin as a nation state looks even more brilliant now, even to the fucking idiots who couldn't see it from the start. And it's a great example of leading with action and not trying to pander to every fucking Tom, Dick and Harry who waves their hands and says, no, you can't do this. So that was a long winded way of me saying that pacifying of the masses is the basis of the communist appeal, right? It's trying to find something that they're going to be able to get the most number of people to get behind with inflamed rhetoric and hollow talking points and a bunch of word salad mm -hmm. that doesn't actually mean anything and represents no actual plan. And what I loved about the uncommunist manifesto is that in contrast to Marx, who doesn't even know what he's saying half the time, you guys start out the book with definitions. You started out by defining what is capitalism? What is energy? What is communism? What is entropy? What is Bitcoin? And I think that that was a brilliant way to do it because we can't ever have a meaningful conversation unless we agree on what we're talking about and what words mean because they do have meaning. So I want to give this back to you a little bit because I'd love to, you know, you mentioned that, okay, yes, Bitcoin, uh, the path to hyper Bitcoinization, let's say is likely longer and more fraught than many would 
idealistically choose to believe. I, I, I will accept that as well. I, will, I agree with that. One of the things that you've been writing a lot about recently is energy. And this is a incredibly fraught topic on the global stage. You see the climate conferences, you see all this hysteria about, uh, quote, climate change uh, in a world that has undergone many climate changes before humans ever exist or, you know, ever existed. But I want to, I want to, yeah, where, where, where do you, uh, you know, where do you start your, what's your kind of logical foundation for approaching the topic of energy as it relates to Bitcoin and as it relates to human flourishing going forward. And I would say the very, uh, parasitic mentality of some of these neo-communists who say that we need to just keep printing more money to finance climate programs that, and if we don't do that, then the oceans are going to flood while the, you know, the hills and the valleys burn and we're all going to be dead in 10 years from now, always 10 years from now, from whenever they're writing it. Exactly. Yeah. Man, let's, okay. So let's, let's break a few things down. Um, I, I really want to drill into energy. Maybe just before I do, um, I wanted to just uh, pull on one definition, authoritarianism. I want to mm-hmm. I want to take back that word. Um, I want to <laughs> claim that authoritarianism is a good thing. So hear me out on this. Is, uh, I think authority as a concept is something that uh, the disease of leftism and openness and communism, whatever, um, has... Uh, infiltrated us and hypnotized us into thinking authority is a bad thing. Um, I have come to believe that authority is similar to like excellence, responsibility, etc. Because authority is something that you must trade time, energy, and effort for. You know, like the master is an authority. Like you, we used to have the master and the apprentice, right? And the apprentice would seek out an authority. And he would work for the authority. And sure, at times you get treated like shit because, you know, no one's perfect. But at the end of the day, like the the premise behind learning as an apprentice was to also in time become an authority. So authority, I believe, is a fantastic thing. And hierarchically speaking, authority must be at the top. And I would argue that Bukele is an authoritarian, but in the good sense because he is the authority in Salvador and he has very much like what I would almost I'd envision a CEO King kind of archetype. He has taken charge of the fucking situation and he has directed Salvador into a place that is fundamentally better than where it was. And that requires authoritarianism. So I would kind of separate that from maybe totalitarianism which is, you know, this ability to kind of, you know, create a surveillance 1984 state that turns everybody into a bug man um, and, you know, destroys the spirit of the individual. You know, authority implies like leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So, so anyway, it's like I'm, I'm going into these like terms, like even elite, for example, like I wrote an article many years ago saying, let's take back the word elite because elite means cream of the crop it means to rise to the top elite uh you know i think even in this um nietzsche article that i wrote like i've got the etymology of elite right it i I think we need to take back these words and be very precise with our definition so i just wanted to throw that in there 
as um, as an offering. I I, I I like that premise actually, because you know it, it's another good example of words matter, mm -hmm. and the meaning attached to those words matters, and many words have been used as cudgels, if you will, to try and browbeat the totally. less informed populace into, you know, they, they, it's some sort of a dog whistle for the, you know, for certain sections of the populace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I think that it is a good separation between, uh, you know, authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And I think perhaps if, if, if I'm understanding your kind of, uh, your premise correctly, you would say that probably authoritarianism does not involve the total control of the economic forces of the market, whereas totalitarianism requires the total control totally of exactly. the forces yeah. of production, as well as the total control of as many aspects of your life as they can get their grubby little hands on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah. Totalitarianism yeah. is like it's this total fucking control. Total. And it comes from a place of fear. It comes from a place of like, wanting to fucking micromanage everybody. It's, it is it is middle management, longhouse hell. That's essentially what totalitarianism is. Authoritarianism is fucking leadership. It is an authority saying this, like I'm the fucking captain of the ship and we're going in this direction, you know? And I might be fucking retarded, but this is the direction. And, and, and at least like human beings have, you know, the, the incredible capacity to figure shit out. So even sometimes when they're heading in the wrong direction, they all get behind the captain, they figure their way out, right? And it's like, this is, I mean, you know, the, by, by hating the idea of authority, what we've started to do is we've started to invert functional hierarchies. Now, what do we do? We place the most incompetent moron into a position of authority because they're fucking... 13 genders and fucking got six disabilities and, you know, they're on 35 meds, right? Now, because of that, they are the new authority. Um, so it's like we, we, we've, we've just demolished the very function of authority in a civilization, which is competence. Like authority implies competence. Like to become an authority, you must, you must be competent. You must have invested the time uh, in order to do so. Otherwise, you're not an authority. You're, you're a fucking, you're a fraud. Right. And that's what well, we have to I, I think that's a good point. And that just, again, in the interest of reclaiming these words, you know, uh, to be an authority on something, to become an authority on something, I should say, because you, you cannot just be, be an authority. Exactly. You must be, you must become an authority. And that is an organic and emergent totally, process. Totally. That is something that should happen through your proof of work. And that hours. should be readily apparent. The idea, and I think what we've what we've come into in modern society, is more of the logical fallacy of appeal to authority mm -hmm. versus. But it's a false authority. It's an authority that is placed there and said, "This is the authority. This is it." Without Fiat authority, literally. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's that's a really important distinction because, you know, we should all strive to be an authority on something. Right to be because that implies that you are, if you are a phenomenal fucking brain surgeon, you may be the authority on a specific type of brain surgery. That that is a good thing. And when you tell other doctors what they should do in that instance in a surgery, yes, you are being an authoritarian um, in that context. But I, I think it's a it's a very it's a very good point about just reclaiming definitions 
and using words that have actual meaning versus buzzwords that we've been fed totally. uh, that have taken on their own life. And language evolves, right? It does. This is this is natural. Language is always going to evolve. But that means that language is never static. So we do have a chance at taking some of these words back, which in my mind is a very heartening thing. But I, speaking of kind of taking back language, taking back narratives, I think this is what you are endeavoring to do with some of your writings, the, the recent ones that I just wrote that are pre-published, but about energy. Um, and because we've, the common sort of, and I, um, we could call it a leftist mentality, but I don't even want to bring left and right into it because I think that that's often an oversimplification. The, what has become a very anti-human sentiment is that using energy, uh, using lots of energy is just inherently bad. That, that when we use more energy, that is not a good thing that should be discouraged. We need to use as little energy as possible because otherwise bad things are going to happen to the planet. And I think that there's become a complete uh, separation between people have come to conflate using energy with like pollution. Mm -hmm, like we mm -hmm, can all agree mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. pollution is bad. Like big smog clouds are bad. That that's not a good thing. You don't want that. What is not a bad thing. What is a very good thing is the utilization of energy in more efficient and productive ways. That is what allows humanity to flourish. That is what has brought us the world out of abject poverty, increased our life expectancy by decades, allowed us to have clean running water and plumbing in every fucking home in most places in the world. That is a good thing. So what in, in the vein of reclaiming the narrative, reclaiming definitions, how do you think about, about energy? What is your, a kind of fundamental operating base for how you approach those types of discussions and maybe those types of debates when you get into them. Yeah, I think when we when we have those discussions and debates, it's really really important to again start out with definitions and set set the set the frame right. Like because if you if you operate from someone else's frame, you're 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 going to be fighting a losing battle. So like you want to win an argument, you want to reframe things. First of all, we need to identify and be very clear about the difference between using energy and wasting energy. And I would argue that, you know, energy is precious. Yes, it's infinite, it's abundant, it's unlimited. Like technically speaking, everything you see around us is a fuel of some sort. It is an energy of some sort. What we are limited by is our capacity to extract, harvest, channel, harness, the energy, right? Like, I'm sure in some fucking 10,000 years from now, uh, I will be able to turn this pen into some sort of fusion reactor that powers my spaceship, okay? But we do not have the technical prowess now to take the atoms from here and split it from the pen, right? So it's like, there is enough energy in the atoms in this pen to do whatever I want. But we just, we are limited by our technological prowess, which therefore means that there is an amount of energy that we can extract, harness, harvest, whatever word you want to use, from the fuel sources that are available to us at the current point in time. So we do not want to waste that energy. We want to utilize it as efficiently and effectively as possible. Because if you view life in economics as a game, that which utilizes the energy most effectively and efficiently 
wins or it progresses or it continues. Like if you want to make the argument that life is that which wants to continue or perpetuate, well, that's what it does. It, it, it takes energy and it channels it in a direction that is pro-life and, uh, you know, ideally away from entropy, right? So, 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 so this, like, if we, if we can start with that sort of paradigm and that sort of framework and agree there, then, you know, we, we can, I guess, move on to the idea that, okay, well, in that case, harnessing, channeling, utilizing energy is a good thing. It is, it is, it is in line with life, which, you know, if we want to live, if we want to progress, if we want you know, civilization to continue, then ideally we should be pro-life, you know, if we're talking about just ending everything, we may as well just fucking press a few buttons and nuke everything right now, right? Get it um, over with. Yeah. Exactly. Just so, so like, let's just pick a fucking side and just decide, right? So if we are in that case pro-life, then what we need to be doing is we need to be not only uh, minimizing the wastage, but we need to be working out ways in which the units of energy that we extract or harness or harvest are as energetically viable and economically viable as possible. So this is where a lot of people don't know this about me, but I used to be in the solar industry. I built one of Australia's largest solar renewable energy businesses in my early 20s. And you know, I, that business blew up and I'll take responsibility, but it was something that I didn't foresee happening, which was the government introducing a bunch of rebates, which made all of us a bunch of money. And then when it came time to pay the rebates out, they paid around 50 cents on the dollar and we all got yeah. basically janked. And that, that was when my uh, distrust and hate for government sort of came from when I was 23, 24. I went from being a millionaire one day to broke motherfucker the next day. Um, but I have a special place for solar in a negative way now because back in the day i genuinely thought that, oh my god you know you have this thing and you got the sun and like why are we not just like using that as energy now i'm a little bit smarter and as i realize okay this thing has a lifespan which means it's only going to produce energy for a particular period of time or it's only going to harness a particular uh, energy for a particular period of time that's going to diminish uh it's also not going to harness energy when there's no sunshine. So, you know, it's got a limited actual lifespan. But what it costs in energy and time terms to produce this bloody thing doesn't actually make a lot of sense. So we end up with this very, very low density, high entropy form of energy, which is not able to carry life. So it has low carrying capacity with respect to life. So then I start to think, okay, well, if that's the case, you know, what do we need to do from an energy harnessing or energy harvesting standpoint is we need to focus on density, 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 density. We need to find fuel sources which are as dense as possible because they have the, they give us the capacity to carry or to sustain or to support more life. And that for me, like if I had to sum it all up is, the goal for humanity should be harnessing, you know, fuel sources that are as dense as possible that we can extract, harvest, and, uh, you know, use the energy and do our best to minimize the wastage because 
waste is just fucking stupid. Like, you know, the more you waste, the less chance you have of perpetuating life. And, you know, it is the former is something that we've been able to do with like oil, coal, nuclear, etc. Like we have the capacity to do this stuff. It's the latter where we're running around like a bunch of blind people is that I believe we probably waste 90 or 95% of the energy out there because we live in a fiat society. We produce shit we don't need. We do it slower, more stupid, more retarded, more backwards than we otherwise would uh, had we had a, um, a monetary system that we could measure all of the stuff accurately with. We're literally like blind men trying to build a house and not only like trying to build a house being blind, but we're using a elastic tape measure. And we're wondering why everything is like all wonky and fucking nothing's holding together. Like Bitcoin is like eyesight with a tape measure that works. And as a result, you actually get a house. You don't get a fucking shack. So it's like, this is, anyway, I've rambled on a little bit, but. No, no, I, I, I appreciate the frame because I think it's a really important concept that when it comes to energy, when it, people like to think of it uh there are a lot of people who say oh ju just the act of using energy or using quote too much energy is somehow wasteful it's like that's it's not wasteful if it's going towards productive things that create value and enhance the human experience right and i mean the human experience broadly what <laughs> what people i think just get really fucking tripped up on is this idea that uh, of using energy for Bitcoin. Like we mm -hmm. see this all the time. I think this narrative is going away. It's, it's, it's going to be a, a FUD of the past before too long. You know, the change the code intern will still be screeching, you know, <laughs> no, like for, uh, you know, until their funding, until their funding from Ripple runs out. But, but people are, are at least coming around to it because, and they're, uh, the, the place that they need to get to, I think that a lot of us Bitcoiners have reached is that how can you, uh, any society that does not have the base layer, base layer scarcity, base layer auditability, base layer predictability is going to be wasteful. The fiat system is inherently wasteful. It is a system of creating something from nothing, uh, creating money from nothing, and then using that to create a lot of things that are superfluous, that, that are not needed that do not advance our species and that ultimately leave people worse off than they were before. So it comes down to that uh, trying to eliminate waste. And the only way to do that is to have a base layer that allows you to actually measure what is being wasted and to conserve, you know, Bitcoin is fundamentally conservative, yes. not for anyone listening in the political way, conservative in the literal meaning of the word to conserve. And I think that's what a lot of people in the, let's call it the mainstream, uh, are, are missing. But I, I hope that they get there soon. Let's, let's, let's break down the wastage. I see sort of three buckets, right? Is you've got like the actual how the money functions. You have next is like misallocation of resources and malinvestment. Mm -hmm. And then the final one is kind of like the superfluous nature of like creating high time preference and therefore consumerism. So like if we look at those three elements of wastage. The first one is, let's look at if I want to go down the street and buy a coffee, right? And uh, I tap my card, right? That seems simple. 
you know, it's like, okay, yeah, a payment went through. That's pretty low energy. But if you start thinking, okay, what needs to exist in order for me to do that? Well, first of all, like stupid plastic card needs to exist. Um, and then all the terminals and you need to have the companies that act as terminal or payment gateways. And then, you know, the, and that's whether it's square or pigs or this or that, whatever, like there's millions of them, right? Um, then you need to have the banks that enable, you know, the, the money to move, you know, and the credit clearing houses and all of that sort of stuff. And each of those banks and credit clearing houses, you, you start, you also need MasterCard and fucking Visa. Like think about just the number of employees and the number of buildings. Think about the lighting bill for MasterCard globally, right? <laughs> so like just, you need all of that infrastructure. Then you need the banks, then you need the central banks, you know, to, to exist in order to issue the money. And then beyond the central banks, you need like the government and the judicial system to exist in order to keep them honest. Then you need the military industrial company. You need all of this shit. And think about the amount of energy, people, time, resources, and shit that is involved in the ability for me to go down the street and tap my card to get a coffee, right? Whereas Bitcoin provides basically the same guarantee or in fact, an order of magnitude better guarantee of money and all that happens is electricity goes in to fucking miner and at the other end you have bitcoin it's like a direct energy to money transmission there is no shorter path like because all of this stuff for, for me to have money in my shitty bank account and be able to tap my visa card the energy input from all of that cascading crap needs to exist and, and that is all underpinned at the end of the day by coal, oil, nuclear, gas, whatever, right? So, so, but that stuff, instead of being transmuted into a monetary network, it's got to go through all of those layers of shit in order to come to us. And that's fine because humanity didn't go from fucking gold to Bitcoin. Like, you know, we had to get there. Like a lot of people have this sort of misconception. It's like, oh, you know, fiat is the epitome of evil. Yes, it's bad, but it's we had to get through it, right? It is like part of like, it's it's the mud in the race, you know, when you're doing your, you know, tough mudder or whatever, like you have to go through that shit and we're gonna come out the other end. But like, th this was a necessary component that we had to progress through in order for civilization to become more complex. And you know, think about like how much energy goes into that and how we are still able to build quite a complex society. Rip away all that wastage man, that energy can get redirected into something else. So that's kind of like one layer. The second layer of malinvestment, when you can print money, what do you do? Fundamentally, you change the incentives about where money goes. So instead of building, I don't know, like, uh, you know, where I'm in Brazil now, motherfuckers here can't get the drains right. Like every single Airbnb I go to, the drains just fucking clog up. Like, I don't know what's wrong with these people. Like why they can't just like build a, a greater... Uh, degree of elevation between the drain and pipe, whatever, like, you know, instead of that, you know, there's apps about, you know, building the next dick pic or whatever, like, you know, or dating or whatever, like, you know, like, so all of our resources get mismanaged and, you know, you have stupid, like AI companies being built that do literally nothing or financial arbitrage apps being built that literally do nothing or crypto that literally does nothing or like, carbon companies you know and climate change like so it's all like misallocation of capital which is another word for wastage and then so so you've got all this like distortion like i, I you know the the visual that i have in my head is that stupid uh i think it was an indian bodybuilder who just like 
pump these biceps full of synthol, oh. right? Yeah, it's like th- oh. that's that's what our economy looks like. It's this this thing that is like a Frankenstein, weird, like deformed in such a way that it's like in the in the space of like atoms. Like I mean, airlines, flights should be beautiful now. They are fucking hell because all of the capital is going towards building dick pic apps and trading apps, right? Instead of like fixing something in the world of atoms. So that's kind of like the next level of wastage. And then obviously the final level of wastage is the fact that we are incentivizing low time preference, cheapness and consumerism. And what comes out of that is this incessant need to buy the next piece of plastic shit that lasts six months so that you can buy another piece of plastic shit that lasts four months so that you can buy another piece of plastic shit that lasts two months and into perpetuity you know of just like junk and crap and junk and crap which turns into pollution so it's like more wastage more waste more pollution more junk more crap and like if you think about all of that and like bitcoin coming in and just like disrupting those jesus christ man like you get an unlocking of energy i mean even just like I'll just say this one point because I, I get really passionate about this. So I went crazy the first time I went to Brazil. Like I was sitting there trying to hire a car. And dude, I had to wait in this stupid line for three hours because everybody had to be six feet apart. And they were they were showing us like they had this like they built this uh, kind of like perspex, plate perspex like box where they would put the cars in and they would spend an hour like spraying the car down with all these fucking chemicals and like what and these people in hazmat suits and i was like god almighty like think about the time that is being wasted now the energy that is being wasted now like multiply that by every single person that is either at a at a bank or a car hire or an airline or i was like holy fucking shit we are wasting as a civilization 99.99999 percent of our energy and time right now on the greatest possible stupidity in human history. Like, I was like, how the fuck is anything still functioning? It's a miracle. So what that tells me is that, like, we can do so much as human beings with so little. And if we unlocked and stopped wasting, so if we unlocked that potential and stopped wasting all that energy, dude, we should be a type one, type two civilization by now. You know, with fucking oil and the little bit of nuclear we have. But no, we are squandering most of it. And this is, you know, coming back to, like, Final point is, you know, my fire Bitcoin teleportation article is like, you know, everyone talks about like, you know, the Kardashev scale and the great filter. That doesn't fucking happen without the discovery of energy money. Doesn't fucking happen. This is what all the physicists don't fucking get. They look at it through like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, you need like multicellular organisms. You need sex. You need apes. And then, you know, all of a sudden we'll be like multiplanetary species. No, dickhead. You need the fucking energy money. Like that is like the big discovery. That is the big aha moment, which aligns human action, economics, energy, time in a direction such that we are not squandering everything. So I'll calm the fuck down now. And no, I, I, I love it though. And cause I think it's such an important thing to focus on, not just the high time preference behavior that is created because that's, that's an, you know, people are incentivized to have high time preference behavior, right? When you have high time preference money that loses its value quickly, you incentivize high time preference behavior. And that leads to waste because you don't think through things. You don't plan ahead. When you plan ahead, you do things more efficiently and effectively and achieve better results. When you fucking fly off the cuff doing scrambling to do whatever you think you need to do just to keep your head above water. Cause the system is so fucked. 
that's where you create waste. And the other big area that I see going back to your first point uh, is just, you know, about all the layers of abstraction between you, sim a, a seemingly simple action of you tapping the card to purchase a coffee and money actually settling on the back end. There are like, I think even if we spent the day trying to count them out, the layers of abstraction, we would still miss a mm -hmm. couple dozen probably. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the idea that so much of the inefficiency that's baked into our system at the monetary layer, which then permeates out to everything else. Cause the money is the base layer. All of that inefficiency is coming from the layers of abstraction and the middlemen that we place. And the whole idea of Bitcoin is get rid of the trusted third party, get rid of the middleman, go directly to the source and have, as you said, energy money where you are removing the abstraction. You are allowing the energy to be conserved and not be just, you know, at the whims of fucking chaos because you get rid of all the fucking people just shuffling papers, so to speak in between. The That's traders, and we see, yeah, exactly. And we see that level of middleman based inefficiency in so many areas, not just of the economy, but of our political economy. I mean, th this is the bureaucrat, right? This is not the leader. This is not the, you know, this is not the one at the top. This is not the one at the local level. This is this, these are the fucking all the different bureaucrats in the education system. We see that the decline of test scores and of, you know, merit based uh, academia and the rise of spending on a bloated bureaucratic class of paper shufflers that don't actually do jack shit. And in fact, detract from the productive capital that would otherwise be deployed on actual education or on actual, you know, people talk about all the time, you know, oh, with, well, without you paying your taxes, we won't have any roads. And it's like, have you ever fucking been to Chicago? We pay through the fucking nose with taxes. We our roads, roads are, <laughs> and our roads are all toll roads. You have to pay tolls to drive on your own fucking roads that you apparently pay taxes for. And they're still full of fucking potholes. So I'm sorry, you know, it's an extreme example, but it's also a fucking one of the biggest brightest cities in the USA that's also riddled with crime, rampant with corruption and uh, having a mass wealth exodus. But hey, at least we pay taxes and pay tolls to have shitty pothole filled roads because thank goodness for all the fucking middlemen bureaucrats that clog up the otherwise productive capital being deployed. What would we do without them? We'd be lost little sheep, little NPCs just glitching in a corner somewhere, you know? Oh, thank goodness for the bureaucrats. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Svetsy, I could, I could rip with you all day on this because I think you and I would probably, uh, would probably both uh, go on some heavy tangents as well, uh, going down the class of just fucking the unproductive and bureaucratic layers of our society. And I wish we had a little more time, but both of our time is scarce. Your time is scarce. What I want to finish up with, uh, and then I have one unrelated question, but what I want to finish up with is maybe... Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with AI and Bitcoin? Because I think it's a really cool project and one that I'd really like to highlight. So can you give us the kind of recap of, you know, what you're building for those that don't know and kind of what your goal is with that moving forward? Absolutely. Yes. So to, to sum it up, we've evolved the thinking on this a lot, but it's we are positioning ourselves at the nexus of Bitcoin and AI, and we're trying to use AI to make Bitcoin 
easier, more accessible, more understandable. And we're trying to use Bitcoin to potentially also make AI more open. And what I mean by that is, I'll explain through a couple examples. The first suite of models, which depending on when this goes live, might actually be available for people to download for free on Hugging Face and they can run it locally. It's going to be open sourced or they can access it through spiritsatoshi.ai. And it is basically a, a Bitcoiner model. So similar to ChatGPT, it'll be a language model that you can ask any question about anything and it'll answer more like a Bitcoiner, right? That's the premise of the core model. And you know, the, the use case for something like that might be embedding it into an exchange as an education onboarding assistant, embedding it you know, as a tutor in, a, in an educational app like Wiser or what the Plan B guys are doing, etc. So all, all that sort of stuff. But an, another example, and this is something we're excitedly working on now, is a Bitcoin coding assistant. So we're calling it Code Satoshi. Very original, I know. Um, <laughs> and uh, basically the idea is that it will specialize in everything from like Miniscript, RGB, BitVM, you know, whole punch, Nostra, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it'll help developers who are not familiar with Bitcoin, Bitcoin protocols, Bitcoin frameworks, Bitcoin, you know, languages, etc., to be able to build Bitcoin products and services. So, so that's kind of like using AI to enable Bitcoin more broadly. Um, and then the other direction is, um, is like there's this whole push that, you know, in the long term, we're going to need more open source uh, models. Now, the best way to build open source models is to really crowdsource the data, crowdsource the information, whether it's the, the collection, the curation, or the cleanup of the data, or the training of the model through reinforcement learning or whatever. You want to get a crowd to do that. Now, the question becomes, how the fuck do you incentivize the crowd? Well, you know, there's a thing called micropayments and there's a thing called Lightning, which might be able to incentivize people all around the world without a bank account, blah, 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 to do so. So we actually built a prototype of this um, specifically to help us build our own model. So we've got the whole Bitcoin community assisting us. Um, well, not the whole Bitcoin community, obviously, but a bunch <laughs> of people from around the world uh, assisting us in the data curation, collection, cleanup. Uh, and that data then goes into training the open source models. So we hope something like that. So let's say if you want to build, I don't know, a fucking a Christian Bible studies app, if you want to build a self-defense language model, if you want to build a, I don't know, like a Tucker Carlson bot or Ayn Rand, bring her back <laughs> to life, whatever, like you, you'll need a framework like this. Um, and we hope that this is a way for us to, you know, make Bitcoin a, a thing inside uh, AI. So that's the nexus at which we're operating. And likely by the time this comes out, we are writing the first um, Bitcoin AI industry report. It's about 50 pages. It goes into like we interviewed 50 Bitcoin content creators and VCs and Bitcoin companies to understand what the pain points and problems are and how AI could potentially act as a solution. And we also outline and document the process of building a Bitcoin centric language model what it takes to build a language model, training, data collection, all this sort of, it's, it's a really, it's a juicy report, similar to River's Lightning report that came out like a couple mm -hmm. months ago. It's going to be the first, we're calling it the nexus of Bitcoin and AI. So that report will be out before the end of the year for people to do a little light Christmas reading. So yeah, that's I love it. overview of the stuff on yeah. that side of things. I, I appreciate the rundown because I, I wanted to make sure that I, I got that in because I think what you're doing is fascinating there. I think it's great that you're building it out in the open as well because that, you know, building things open source, bringing in feedback from all over the world, 
that's not only how you make sure that these things don't get centralized, don't get captured, but it's also how you make them better. Mm -hmm. Like building out in the open is a fundamentally better way to ensure that your product, your solution has as much diverse feedback. And I mean, true diversity, not the you know bullshit diversity, yeah, yeah, but real yeah. diversity from people of all different types all over the world. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, so it's spiritasatoshi.ai. I'll link to that in the show notes as well, because um, I, I think it's uh, something people should definitely check out and keep an eye on. Thank you. And I think it's going to be, I mean, just off the cuff, it's going to be an amazing tool for education and to build into some of these curriculums, uh, you know, that like Me Premier Bitcoin, Plan B, these various curriculums that if maybe you don't have the manpower, but you want to implement a version of their curriculum in your local area, well, this is a great, you know, uh, artificial assistant for you to be able to do that and to be able to share some of that workload. It's like, you know, like all AI, it's a tool, right? It's a, it depends how you use it. So yeah. building a Bitcoin centric tool that's based on this technology, I think is fantastic. Okay. And the last question I'll ask you uh, is, what are you reading right now? A uh, book that you're reading right now that you would recommend people check out or one you've read recently? Uh, I'm So I don't do much reading anymore um, other than a couple specific blogs um, that are from a guy called John Carter. He's a NIM on Substack, one of the most incredible fucking writers out there, hands down. Um, I can give you his Substack after I um, after we get off this call. Postcards from Barsoom, I think, B-A-R-S-O-O. And I think that's how it's spelled. But um, he's he's a fucking fantastic thinker. Um, I'm on my way to orange killing him. And All right. uh, yes, so um, other than that, I'm spending more time on Audible these days. And I pretty much exclusively do fiction or history. Um, <laughs> and the author I mentioned earlier, Wilbur Smith, and the Courtney series, I've been on a rampage telling everybody to get on this Um start with his first book when the lion feeds um it starts it set in the late 1800s just before the boer war um and it is fucking fantastic it starts with the you know the patriarch of the um of the family sean courtney and it's just something like it's a pleasure to listen to the narrator mm -hmm. is incredible the story is incredible the messaging like the whole lot and like the first three books of that series will just like suck you in and you want to i'm up to book like 11 i think and they're all about 30, oh, 30 hours to give you an idea so like oh wow it's okay fantastic that, like that's a pretty intense uh, uh backlog um I had, okay well good deal well Svetsky, i want to thank you for coming on today because bitcoin is scarce like our time but bitcoin podcasts are abundant so thank <laughs> you for sharing your scarce time with me on another fucking bitcoin podcast it's been a pleasure and can't wait to have you back on at some point in the future thank you my friend may i do one more shill actually just something yeah, that is not? coming out in why December. Um, Throw it on out. Bitcoin Times. So the the annual publication I run once a year. Um, last year was the Austrian edition. We had Seyfedean, Goldstein, Pierre Richard, etc. Um, it's basically, it's an invitation only uh, publication that I do once per annum. And like it's six essays written by people that I think are the best in their particular field. And this year it's the energy edition. So I've got Marty Bent, Drew Armstrong, uh, Brian Gitt, Gideon Powell, Andrew Myers, and myself. Uh, and one of the pieces in there is obviously the Nietzschean piece that you and I kind of touched on a little bit. Um, but this is this is done once a year, and I print 2,100 of each. So they're a collectible. They're super, super fucking high quality. They're a heavy set print. 
um, they're numbered on the back. So that way, you know, you know what edition you've got is yours. So it's kind of like a collectible meets Bitcoin literature. It's something that, you know, speaking of low time preference, it's something that you would buy and then hand down to your children, children's children, etc. Um, and we're going to do 21 editions over 21 years um, and 2100 of each printed. So the energy edition is on pre-sale now. And if you're listening to this and you want to get a copy, I'll give you 40,000 sets off um with the code energy so if you use that code you save some sets that's an easy co easy code to remember energy for the energy issue no I, I love it and i i, I appreciate for getting uh, you sending me the copy or the preprint to get a to get a look at because i really enjoyed that piece and can't Excellent. wait to check out the rest of it so thank you, my man thank you for your time here today and uh i'm sure we'll chat again soon we will And that's a wrap on this Bitcoin Talk episode of the Bitcoin Podcast. If you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, head to bitcoinpodcast.net or hit me up on social media. On Noster, head to primal.net slash walker. And on Twitter, search for at Walker America or at Titcoin Podcast. You can also watch the video version of this show on X or on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash atwalkeramerica or Rumble by searching for atwalkeramerica. Bitcoin is scarce. There will only ever be 21 million. But Bitcoin podcasts are abundant. So thank you for spending your scarce time to listen to another fucking Bitcoin podcast. Until next time, stay free. <laughs>